If you have your Bibles, grab them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And please stand out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, I preach to you what you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than the other of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Chapter 15. The last two weeks we have uh, looked at a section where uh, Paul deals with spiritual gifts, particularly uh, in, in 13, the, those, the importance of those gifts being rooted in and used uh, in love for the building up of uh, the body. Uh, I'll be diving deeper into some of that, some of those more obscure sections that uh, in the course of this series don't really have time to hit. So if you tune into the podcast this week, we'll talk about speaking in tongues and some of those things. Uh, and so if you want to check that out, do that. But today we're going to start in chapter 15. Uh, and 15, man, is an awesome chapter. You probably hear it a lot at funerals, at gravesides, uh, but it is filled with so much hope and it's so good. I cannot wait really for next week to dive into that. But this week is good too. Uh, so we're going to dive in. Now, if you have ever coached a sports team, uh, particularly a little kid sports team, you know the feeling or that moment you have, right? Uh, They've warmed up, they've stretched, they're getting ready to go out there and play, and there's like 10 things that you want to tell these kids before they go out and play. Um, But you understand that if you tell them, you know, five things, six things, 10 things, they are not going to remember any of them. Right, And so you send them out with the one thing that you want to make sure they remember. right? The one thing you want to drill it in their head right before they go play. So hopefully by the grace of God they'll do it. Uh, right now I'm coaching all, uh, all of my five children in basketball. Uh, and for the f- first few weeks, right before I'd send them out, uh, I would stress to them, guys, one word, rebound. You gotta get the rebound. Y'all are like playing patty cake. Like, oh, if, if, can I? Can I have it? Maybe. Like, if it's okay with you, I will take the ball. May, no, you you can have it. That's fine. Like, you gotta get me and go fight for that thing. Rebound. Go give me the rebound. Give me the ball. Right. I'm hoping that they'll figure the rest out. Like shooting the ball, dribbling. That you know, that's kind of all part of it. They see everybody else doing it. They'll get that. One thing I want you to know: get me the ball. Rebound. 
Paul opens up chapter 15 with a reminder of what is most important. It is the one thing that he wants to make sure they know, they remember, they get reminded of. He says in verse 3 that he delivered to them of what is first importance. He's reminding them of that now. So what is it? What is that thing of first importance, the most important thing in the Christian life? What is that thing? That if you can only tell them one thing, if one thing you want to make sure they get, what is it? Well, he tells it to us very clearly in verse 1. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. See, the gospel is the most important thing in the Christian life. It is the most important thing in the Christian life. So what I want to do this morning is focus on this opening paragraph in chapter 15. Walk us through what I'm going to call gospel essentials. Gospel essentials. I want you to see in these opening verses the fundamental, essential, absolutely necessary, and critical for your ongoing walk with Christ truths that you must know. So, look at verses 3 and 4 with me. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The first gospel essential we're going to look at is the gospel itself. And, and I'm doing this, I'm, I'm going to kind of look at the text a little bit out of order, right? Uh, out of order of the text, because before we can talk about some of these other things, these kind of outworkings of the gospel or kind of things tangentially related to the gospel, we have to understand what the gospel is. And you would think or you would hope that in a, in a church that when I say the word the gospel, that that would be clear and obvious and we would all know exactly what I mean when I say that word. But my experience has taught me otherwise. My experience uh, has taught me that uh, that word, the gospel, has uh, taken on different meaning for different ones of us. If I gave every one of you a piece of paper and I said, I want you to write down in one sentence what the gospel is, uh, a lot of them would be very similar uh, and true and right and accurate. Uh, But many of them would just be wrong. You see, the word the gospel has become this sort of junk drawer word, uh, a word that we have often used to mean a lot of different things, a word that we can use uh, uh, that we, we don't really fully understand what it means, and so we use the rest of our knowledge to kind of fill in the gaps of what we think that word means. Um, I've asked people uh, to tell me, what, hey, tell me what your understanding of the gospel is, you know, when they want to join our church or something like that, and I've gotten a lot of answers, like they'll say to me, uh, you know, the, go- the gospel is the Bible, and I'll say, man, we love the Bible. We're big Bible people. The gospel's in the Bible, but it's not the Bible. And you know, sometimes people say, you know, the gospel is me trying to live my best for God and, and, and do the best I can for God and go to church. No, that's good. Do that. That's a great thing. Not the gospel. Uh, or we get those kind of insider church, insider Christian answers uh, that, that, that we've heard um, that, that we, we, we know this phrase, but we don't understand the substance behind the phrase. So I grew up with this language, used this language, you've used this language probably, uh, but the language of, you know, hey, we need to ask Jesus into our heart. Right, you've heard that, we've said that, we've used that. 
But sometimes you press deeper into that and people have no idea what's really behind them. That's just the phrase that they've heard, the phrase that they've used. Oh, I did that. I actually used it in my heart. You need to do it too. And so if I could, in some ways, if I could ask you one thing, it would be to never use that phrase again. Don't use that language. I don't know where it started. I'm sure it had great intentions. But it's confusing. It's kind of meaningless language. Unhelpful. If you talk to an atheist who doesn't know anything about the gospel and you told him he needs to ask Jesus into heart, his heart, he'll be like, what, what is that? Can I? It's like Jesus telling Nicodemus, you got to be born again. What? How do I do that? What on earth does that mean? I grew up with that language, have used it, but I think it's, I think it's time we put it to bed. And exchange it for more clear biblical language. There's a book out here on the shelf that I think it's Nathan's recommendation uh, this uh, quarter uh, he's put out there. But it's called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And if, you wanna, if you're interested in that, I encourage you to go pick up a copy. So then, what is the gospel? What is this word that we use so often? What does it mean? Well, the word itself, gospel, comes from the Greek euangelion. And it means good news. It means good news. But this word was not made up by Jesus. This word was not made up by Jesus. It was used long before him in in, in the Greek culture. Uh, And the word gospel, before Jesus was around, was used to refer to when a king or a lord or a mayor or whatever would, would, would go off to battle. Would go off to defend his home or to, to pillage a city or whatever. He'd go off to fight. And if they won, there would be a guy that, that was sent back ahead of them, back home, a herald, to herald the good news, to herald the euangelion, to herald the gospel, that the king has had victory over his enemies, prepare because he's coming home. That was the, that's the historical root of the word. It was the good news that the king or the mayor or the, the Lord has had victory and he's coming home victorious, prepared to celebrate. And so when Jesus hits the scene, what do we find? But that he is our king who has come to do battle for us against Satan and sin and death. And he has come and had victory over Satan, sin, and death. And the herald has come to tell us the good news, the euangelion, that Jesus has won. That's the gospel. That Je- the good news is that Jesus has won. And so I want you to write this down. Here's a, here's a good definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of victory over our enemies through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is the good news of victory over our enemies through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is simply what Jesus has done in history in dying and raising from the dead for us. The gospel is not the Bible. It's not anything you've done or could do. It's not asking Jesus into your heart. The gospel is the proclamation of victory, the good news that our king has defeated his enemies. And this gospel, this victory, Paul is reminding us of in verses 3 and 4, it is really, really good news for us because this victory through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means something amazing. It means that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, who believes in who he is and believes in what he has done, turns from their sin and asks for forgiveness and makes Jesus their king, 
will be forgiven of all of their sins, made right before God, and be adopted into his family. That's what it means for us. The gospel is not about you and what you have done. The gospel is about Jesus and what Jesus has done. And this is the most important fundamental truth in the Christian life. Everything else hinges on, flows out of, or relates back to the gospel in some way, shape, or form. The gospel is what saves us, obviously, but it's also what keeps us humble. It's what keeps us from being holier-than-thou legalists, Pharisees. The gospel lifts lifts us up out of shame and guilt. It reminds us that we are loved and valued and forgiven. The gospel gives us motivation for growing in Christ-likeness, for its motivation to repent, to strive for holiness, to, to share the gospel. It gives us the motivation to live a life pleasing to God. Because discipline without desire is drudgery. If you're in a D group, you may have read that this week. Without the gospel, we just white-knuckle things. We just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps with no joy, suck it up, and just do the thing. But the gospel serves as an incredible motivator to give us gratitude, joy, and a changed heart by which we serve God with gladness. And so the gospel is the most important thing. And so we, what we believe about the gospel, we got to get it right. The gospel is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is the bloody cross and the empty tomb. The gospel is the sinners in the hands of an angry God who deserved judgment and wrath, but yet God in his mercy spares us by sending his son to bear his anger for us. The gospel is the greatest love story ever told, the story of a prince who leaves his throne to a far land, slays the dragon to rescue the princess. The gospel is good news for sinners, which means it's good news for us. It's the most important thing, and as it is the most important thing, it's important that we get the truths around the gospel right as well. And Paul mentioned six things in these opening verses, six things that I'm calling gospel essentials that we got to get right. We got to get the gospel right, but then we also got to get these other kind of essential things around it right as well. These things are not the gospel, but they're related to, and we got to get them right, or we'll end up uh, getting the application of the gospel wrong. All right, so look at verse 1. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. First thing I want you to write down, first gospel essential, is the gospel must be spoken. The gospel must be spoken. There is a famous quote uh, that people love to use because it sounds pithy, it sounds deep, it sounds true, uh, but it's hogwash. And if you're not from the South, that means bad. It says, share the gospel when necessary, use words. Share the gospel when necessary, use words. The idea that is trying to be communicated in this is that your life should model the gospel in such a way that people would see Christ in you. And the way that you live, that that people would see Jesus. And that is certainly true. That people should see the difference in your life. They should see change. They should see uh, that you're sort of weird, honestly. They should see that you're strange. Like, it should be strange the way that you live morally. It should be strange the way you deal with suffering and grief and, and hardship. There, there is something different about you, but your life cannot communicate or articulate the gospel. It can only tell people that there's something weird about you. To share the gospel, we must use words. It must be articulated through sentences. Paul reminds them of the gospel, not that he lived it out in front of them, but that the gospel he preached 
to them. That he told them. It is a message that must be spoken. Many of you know my son Eli, who has Down syndrome, and uh, Eli is five years old, and he is starting to learn to talk, uh, and if he learns your name, he will yell your name at you. Um, but, he, but a lot of times, he communicates through signs, and, uh, and he does not follow uh, ASL or whatever. He, 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 he makes up his own signs. All right, we'll teach him one, and he'll make it his own. And sometimes we just make up, uh, make up ones for him. And so if you were ever like to stay the night at our house and wake Eli up in the morning, probably the first thing that you're going to get from him is him yelling at you, going, ah, ah, ah. And you're going to look at him like, what in the heck is this man trying to tell me? And if you do not know the sign, you will have no idea that this man saying, I want to go to King's Island. <laughs> King's Island is where I want to be. This is a sign we made up because it's a crown. You get it? Yeah. King's Island, and that's where Eli wants to go pretty much every single morning. And I got to break his heart and say, buddy, we ain't going to King's Island today. Daddy going to work. <laughs> Signs are only helpful if you know what they mean. This watching world, they might see the signs that your life is different, but they don't know what the signs mean. They don't know what makes you so different. They don't know that it's because you're a follower of Jesus. And so the only way they will know why you're different is if you share it, speak it, articulate it. It is a gospel essential that the gospel must be spoken, it must be shared. It was shared with you when you believed and now you must share it with others. We're going to continue in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Which you received. The gospel must be received. The gospel must be received. Do you remember the story about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? This man was religious. He went to the temple. He was a good Jewish man. He knew the scriptures. He'd followed the laws and the commands of God to the best of his ability. And, and he wanted to follow Jesus. He had checked every religious box and moral box. He was a good person. He did all the right things. And yet at the end of the story, he walks away from Jesus lost. Why? Because he did not receive the gospel. It was presented to him, but he did not receive it. I might offer you a gift. I might tell you how amazing this gift that I have that I want to give you is. I can tell you about all the things it can do. I can tell you how wonderful this gift is. I might try to push it into your hands and say, take it. But unless you receive it yourself, unless ownership passes from me to you, and you lay claim to it and agree that it is yours, you haven't received the gift. And you see, you can know a lot about the gift of the gospel. You can, you can know about it. You can believe the gospel is true. You can believe God is real. You can do religious things. But if you've not received Christ for yourself individually, then you do not belong to Jesus. It is the reason Jesus tells us that there will be many who die and stand before God and face judgment. And they're going to look at Jesus and not understand why are we here facing judgment? And they're going to say, did we not preach in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. You can know a lot of things about him and not know him. The gospel is the means by which we get to know God. But if you do not receive it for yourself, you might know a lot about him, but you don't know him personally. Your parents, children, cannot receive the gospel for you. 
Your siblings cannot receive the gospel for you. Your friends who are trying to shove it down your throat cannot receive it for you. And that means that there must be a moment of decision. You may not fully know where that moment was, especially if you grew up in the church, but there must be a moment of decision, a moment where you cognitively decide to receive the gospel and to be saved. Guys, this week, uh, or last week, I I met with a a couple uh, who are joining our church and uh, heard her testimony uh, and uh, went to hear his, and he said, well, Really, I need to talk to you about that. I'm, I'm really not sure. I was like, well, we need to have a longer conversation. So we went to lunch this week, and, and we, were, we got to talk in, and, and he had an understanding of the gospel. He understood the cross. He understood the resurrection. He said, and he talked about how he didn't really grow up in church, but he's, since he got married, his, his wife was a believer, and she's kind of told him some things and kind of been around. He's been coming to our church for a couple months, and he's kind of learning. He's kind of, he kind of gets the information, and he believed the information. And then there had to be this moment, okay, so, so what else do I do? I was like, well, you, well, you and I kind of laid out for him, well, you got you to believe. you got to ask for forgiveness. you got to make Jesus the king of your life. you got to repent of your sin. you got to do this. you got to kind of a moment of, of, of trusting in this and do this. And it was kind of an Ethiopian eunuch situation because I'm, I'm telling him that, and he says, in the booth of Quatman's, well, can I do that right now? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Let's do it. And we held hands and he prayed and received Christ. It was a moment of decision, a moment of response, because the gospel information was there, but he had not received it for himself until that moment he did. And he got a good burger. Go to Quatman's. This sermon is brought to you. (laughs) And so he decided in that moment to cognitively make the decision to receive that gift. I want to challenge you. When you share the gospel with people in your life, do not just present the information and stop. Present the information and then call for response. You don't have to have an invitation to call people to respond. you got to say, hey, man, this is true. Are you ready to believe? Are you ready to give your life? Are you ready to trust in him? Because that's something you got to do. The gospel must be received. Continue in verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, and in which you stand. See, the gospel enables us to stand. The gospel enables us to stand. You see, we often think about the gospel, we kind of compare it, I think, in our minds, sort of to an airport runway. That the runway is the means by which we get into Christianity, And it is the means by which we will one day land in heaven. We take off and we land. We get into Christianity we land in heaven one day. But I think it's a wrong understanding of the gospel. Instead, the the gospel is more like the jet fuel. It is the fuel that helps you take off. It is the fuel that helps you to climb to 30,000 feet. It is the fuel that takes you through the turbulence and the hard days. It is the fuel that helps you begin to descend. And it is the fuel that will help you one day land in heaven. The gospel is from beginning and end the essential thing the Christian needs. It is the jet fuel. The text says that the gospel is something in which we stand in. And you can see it in English, but also even more so in Greek. It is in the present tense. Right, the gospel isn't something you just believed at one time a long time ago. It is the power in which you stand right now in the present. It is the gospel that gives you the motivation for life and godliness. It is the gospel that spurs you on to love God and to love other people without white-knuckling it and sucking it up and doing it. With, through some dreary sense of duty. 
The gospel changes our affections. It changes our hearts to behold and love God and love others and serve him. And we don't do it from fear or duty, but from delight. The gospel is my present power to fight my sin. When I'm tempted to sin, my thoughts often go to Calvary to see Christ hanging on the cross for my sin because of the gospel. And my, my desire to change is that I do not want to continue to do the things that put my Savior on that cross. It is the gospel that helps me love people. It's easy not to love people. Right? It's easy. To be angry at people. It's easy to be spiteful. It's easy to want to get even. But when I behold the vast wrong that I have done before God and the vast forgiveness that God has given me, the patience and the love and the long-suffering love that God has given toward me, it takes away my pride. And it enables me to love and forgive and be patient with those who are a little bit harder to love. Those are just a couple examples But in all of life, it is not our own power in which we stand. It is not in our own might, our own rightness in which we stand. It is the gospel that enables us to stand. And so that means you need the gospel not just when you come to Christ, not just when you land in heaven, but you need it today and tomorrow and the next day and every minute and every hour. In that same vein, Paul continues in verse 2 and he says, And it's by which you are being saved. The gospel, I preach, by which you are being saved. Four, write this down. The gospel continues to save us. If you are in a D group uh, and you've started, uh, you are in for a real treat, I think, in this book that we're reading, The Discipline of Grace. If your group has started you, uh, and if you read chapter one, you've read about a statue uh, that the author once saw, a statue of a man holding a hammer and chisel. And he tells us that that is often how we think of ourselves, that we are the self-made man, a statue who could carve himself out of stone. We think that we are people who can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we can conquer our enemies, that we can face our giants, that we can grind, that we can work hard, and that we can propel ourselves forward and make ourselves better. But the reality is the chisel is not in our hands, nor the hammer. But it is in the hands of our Savior. Jesus is slowly chiseling away all of the old you. He is chiseling away the broken, sinful, cursed part of you piece by piece until the only thing left is the perfect reflection of the image of Christ. It reminds me of the artist Michelangelo and what he said about when he carved the famous statue of David. He was asked, how did you do this? And he said it was simple. I just removed all of the pieces of stone that weren't David. And there he was. And that's exactly what God is doing in, in our life through the power of the gospel. He is removing all of the parts of you that are not the new creation, redeemed, made all perfect parts of you. He's just removing all the old parts that are under the curse of sin. And he keeps chiseling away until all that is left is the perfect image of God in you as it was always meant to be. In the church, we use this shorthand language that can sometimes do us a little bit of a disservice. You know, we'll say, uh, are you saved? I'm saved. Are you saved? You know, say, we use that language of saved. And what we mean by that is justification. We mean that we are justified before God, made righteous and right before God. 
But the problem is, is that salvation encompasses the whole spectrum of God's saving work and not just the one idea of justification. Um, it's not all of it, but the big three parts are justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? Uh, or you could say it this way, God saved us in justification, is saving us in sanctification, and will save us in glorification. If in justification God declared us holy, sanctification is then the means by which God is actually making us what he declared us to be. He said, you are holy, you are perfect, you are righteous, you are forgiven. But y'all ain't. Y'all ain't that. He's just said you are in Christ. And so now he's slowly making you into that thing he said you are. That's sanctification. Sanctification literally means making you holy. And so this gospel is not done with you at conversion or at justification. The gospel continues to shape your life and mold your life to make you more like Christ. Let me just give you two quick examples, things that happen as you grow in sanctification. I thought about these two things this week, really reading our D group book. Number one, the longer you follow Jesus, the more holy you will understand God to be. The eyes of your heart, when you first come to Christ, are, they're like squinting, can barely behold the beauty and majesty of God and the holiness of God. But the longer you are around him, the more used to the light of Christ you become and the more and more you are able to open your eyes and intake him. And as you are with him longer, you will discover that he is more holy and more majestic and more beautiful and more wonderful than you first thought when you first got saved. And in turn, what will happen is it will change the way you see yourself. When you first came to Christ, you realized you were sinful. That's why you came to him. But you only saw those big, big obvious sins. You saw the lies and the pride and the lust and the anger. But as you take in more of his holiness and wonder, you will begin to see the sins beneath the sins. Beneath the sins. You will begin to see the roots and just how deep they go. That is the reason the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote like a lot of the New Testament, could say, I am the chief of sinners. And so two wondrous truths begin to grow out of that. You realize simultaneously that you are more sinful than you ever dared dream. But simultaneously more loved and accepted in Christ than you could ever dare hope. What we don't need is fake self-help truth with Christian icing on top. We don't need you're awesome, you're wonderful, you're talented, you're amazing. We need the holiness and beauty of God to overwhelm our sinful state, to expose how deeply broken and flawed and jacked up you are. So that God might bust down the walls of our calloused heart like the Kool-Aid man. Y'all remember the Kool-Aid man? Come busting down the walls of your heart. What's he say? What do you Oh, Yeah. The Kool-Aid man coming there, Jesus busting down the walls of your heart to show you that despite your brokenness, I love you and I'll never forsake you. The second thing you learn uh, as you realize the gospel is where you stand and it's saving you uh, is that the blessings of God do not come to you based on your performance. They come to you based on his grace. Some of y'all believe that God blesses you when you get your act together. Some of y'all believe that God's blessings will come when you live holy enough 
and you get your act together right enough, then God will bless you. But can I tell you something? If the blessings of God were based on your performance, they would be meager blessings. It would be little bitty blessings. And so when you are being sanctified in the gospel, you are moving away from the idea that God is judging you based on your performance and you are moving closer to the truth that you've got to stop looking to you and you've got to keep your eyes on him. Because the fact that you are breathing right now is a blessing from God that you did not earn or deserve. But yet you wake up every morning with the blessing to breathe by his grace. And every other blessing comes by his grace, too. Let's continue in verse 1. Verse 1, so can we're actually kind of going back. Verse 1 starts out with the phrase, I would remind you, brothers. So, number 5, we must remind ourselves of the gospel lest we drift away from it. We must remind ourselves of the gospel lest we drift away from it. Uh, I haven't been to the ocean in a long time, but uh, I remember growing up, uh, going to the ocean and boogie boarding, right? Uh, we lived on the East Coast. Uh, waves were not very big, no surfing allowed over there, uh, but we could boogie board. And uh, I'd be a kid out there, you know, be boogie boarding for hours, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden, you'd kind of look back at the coast to kind of see your people, and you're like, hold up a minute. None of these houses look f- vaguely familiar. <laughs> Where the heck am I? <laughs> And what you did not realize was that every wave slowly took you down the beach. And your people are half a mile that way. <laughs> you drifted without even realizing it. Remember, Paul in this letter is talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who know the gospel. So why do they need to be reminded of the gospel? Because like the waves of the ocean carrying us, it is easy for us to slowly inch by inch drift away from it. Uh, The YMCA is a great example of this. When the YMCA started however long ago, it started with a singular mission. The Young Men's Christian Association. It started with the mission to evangelize and disciple young men to Christ. To help them grow into Christ. That was the mission and the purpose. But what do we find today? But a community center that might perhaps play Christian music in the gym while people work out. The gospel is the anchor that should ground us. The foundation we build upon is the material we build with. We never get over it. We never get past it. The gospel is, is, is enough. When an 8-year-old believes for the first time, they need the gospel. When a 22-year-old is struggling with a porn addiction, they need the gospel. When a 30-year-old is struggling with leaving their spouse, they need the gospel. When a 45-year-old is struggling with a midlife crisis, he needs the gospel. And when a 90-year-old saint who has been following Jesus his whole life lays in a hospital bed, they need the gospel. And so we preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel is simple enough for an 8-year-old to grasp, but profound enough for an 80-year-old theologian to marvel at its depths. And so here is what we've said. The gospel is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which alone can save us. And this gospel must be spoken. It must be received. It is the power in which we stand in every day. It is the means by which God continues to save us and make us holy. And we must hold on to it dearly. Well, notice verse 2. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If you hold fast. To the word I preach to you, unless you believe it in vain. At first glance, this is a 
terrifying verse. At first glance, this, this is scary. What do you mean, unless I believed in vain? There is a temptation to read this too quickly and to think that there is a possibility that those who have genuine faith could somehow lose it. The idea that I could lose my salvation haunted me for most of my childhood. I remember I would lay in bed at night wondering every misstep, every falter, every sin, every doubt that I had. Wondering if I've gone too far this time, doubted too much, if my faith was too little. And I would lie in bed terrified that I wasn't saved or that God had abandoned me or that I had believed in vain. But the good news is that that's not what this verse is talking about. When you expand out and you read all of chapter 15, the point Paul is making becomes more obvious. That's why context is king. We have to read in context. Notice 15 verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. There's that word again, vain. This whole chapter is about the validity of and the application of the resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 14, Paul is saying that if it was true that Christ was, is dead and that his lifeless corpse is laying in a borrowed tomb somewhere, then all of this gospel that I am talking about is pointless and your faith is dumb and futile. All of this is a big hoax and none of it matters. And so you compare that back to verse 2. What is Paul doing? He is setting up for this bigger argument that he's going to make in the rest of 15. And that is that if you place your faith and your hope in Jesus, and it turns out that you place your faith and your hope in a dead guy, then you did believe in vain. All this church stuff, all this belief is in vain. No amount of faith in the world could save you if Jesus is dead in the tomb. Your faith could do nothing. So what's Paul's point? What's he getting at? I want to read this to you, and I want you to, to listen carefully to his argument. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely time we born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace toward me was not in vain because Christ died, Christ was buried, and he was raised from the dead. And he's saying, don't take my word for it. There's all these people out there that saw him. Go ask Peter. He's over there in Jerusalem. Go ask these 500 people that saw him at one time. Most of them are still alive. And go ask his brother James who was against him and against everything he stood for until he saw his brother die and come back again. So go ask that guy and see if I am not telling you the truth. The fact is, your faith, if genuinely placed in Christ, could never, ever be in vain because you cannot screw it up. 
You can't mess it up. You cannot out his grace. You cannot run too far. You cannot doubt too much. You cannot be too bad. You cannot lose what you did not earn. And the beauty of the gospel is that you did deserve to die under the righteous wrath of God. And he took God's righteous wrath. He took hell. He took the cross. He was buried in your tomb And that is not the end of the story, because when Jesus hung on the cross, he said, what did he say? It is finished. But he didn't say, I am finished. And though they laid him in a tomb, death could not hold him. The curse of your sin could not keep him. And so Jesus, physically and literally and historically, was raised from the dead. And if he is alive, that means that no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, if your faith is in him, he is never finished with you. And your faith could never be in vain because it's not your faith that holds you. It is Christ that holds you fast. God cannot and will not ever let you go because Jesus died for you, but he is alive. And so here is the final gospel essential truth I want you to leave with this morning. Write this down in your notebook and in your heart. The gospel can never be believed in vain because once Jesus has you, he never, ever, ever lets go. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we are reminded of what is of first importance. Not for those who are far from God in need, but for every single one of us. Whether it is our first day following Jesus or our 90th, 900th day following Jesus. We need this basic truth that has incredible depth to it. We need to preach this message to ourselves. That we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Who but but his love would send his son to bear his anger in our place so that we might become sons of God. And so, Father, for those of us in this room right now who, who might know information about the gospel, but are like the demons who believe and shudder at the name of Jesus, who, be, who know it, who believe those things are true, they believe the resurrection is true. The demons know he's alive, but yet they're far from him. So for those in this room who who are close, who know the right things but have not received Christ for themselves, Father, would you give them the courage as we sing this song to come talk to me up here on the left and, and say, Brent, I think we got to figure this out. He said, I want to receive Christ for myself and make my life new. What a joy that could be for you this morning. But for those of you in this room right now who are here and you are wallowing in shame and in guilt because of a sin of yesterday or a sin of 10 years ago that you can't let go of, believe the gospel is true. There is no shame, there is no guilt because Christ has borne it all in his body. And for those of us in this room who are feeling pretty good about ourselves, pretty high and mighty, feeling like we've we got this Christian walk thing down, Father, would you use the gospel to humble us and remind us that our sin was so vast that God had to die? Father, would the gospel be the thing that grounds us and changes us? If you are here this morning and I could pray with you, walk with you through something, whether that be salvation or anything else going on in your life, it would be my joy to do that. Father, give us the strength to respond the way we need, or just stand there and sing this beautiful song. Yet not I, 
but Christ in me is the refrain of our life. Not I. Take my eyes off me and put them on Christ. Let's do that together. Christ, and we pray all people say, let's stand.